Hi, and welcome back to Voices. This is Voices, Episode 8. Uh, this episode is Occupy Imperial, and uh, our guest host is Sam Richards. You've been with us before. Say hi, Sam. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and our guest is also a return multiple guest. He's been with us since one of our first shows uh, when we were Occupy America. Uh, Brandon Turbeville, say hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> we're having a lot of technical trouble, so we anticipate we're going to have a kind of a rough audio, but we'll try and catch it in edit. And uh, bear with us, and we'll just keep on pumping it through. We're still here. You're still there. Let's get the show started. Uh, I'd like to take off with your article, Brandon. You were one of the first people that caught we just did a uh, uh, Tonkin Gulf again. Can you tell us a little about that, and we'll have a link to that article? Yeah, well, basically what happened was the uh, the United States has launched missiles inside Yemen now, and they've been supporting the Saudi-led uh, coalition, uh, if you want to call it that, the Saudi war crimes against humanity, the bombing campaign against Yemeni civilians. For some time, they've been doing it through logistics, through intelligence, satellite imaging. They've been helping uh, refuel Saudi jets in the air. So they've been sort of directly but also indirectly supporting the Saudi uh, bombing of Yemen. But now they're directly supporting the the campaign by firing their own missiles. And the justification for this was that the Houthis allegedly fired missiles at the USS Mason, which is um, a destroyer out in off the coast of Yemen. And so the idea was that the Houthis fired these missiles. They missed, and the United States had no choice after two volleys of missiles were fired but to respond by firing their own missiles. And then this allegedly happened again. The Houthis allegedly fired more missiles at the U.S. ships. And the uh, U.S. responded again by yet more missiles that were, again, allegedly taking out radar systems of the Houthis. And the reason this is so questionable is because, uh, A, why was the U.S. ship off the coast of Yemen to begin with? That's something that most people need to, to ask themselves, right? Even if the missiles were fired, what were you doing there in the first place? And then the the second reason this is questionable is the the actual motivation. The Houthis are very you know weak in terms of uh, their military supplies. Now they have a lot of fighting prowess. They're very tough. They've proven that over and over again. But uh, this is not the quality of a national military. They're picking. They're, they're fighting the Saudis. They're fighting the uh, United Arab Emirates. They're fighting. The uh, loyalists to uh, uh, the, the the former Yemeni president that was ousted, and why would they pick a fight with the United States? Why would they fire these missiles that couldn't even make it to the ship to begin with at the uh, United States ship and just and, and pick a fight with the biggest and toughest and most efficient military in the world? It doesn't make sense. And the reason I drew that comparison was because this is what we saw during Vietnam, right? The North Vietnamese boats were firing torpedoes at the U.S. boats, and the U.S. boats had no choice but to respond and defend themselves. And years later, we have 58,000 dead American soldiers, millions of dead Vietnamese on something that didn't even happen, and that was admitted by Robert McNamara. So uh, I, I question this whole incident. Uh, to be honest, and I think it's basically Gulf of Tonkin version 2.0. Uh, Sam, what, uh, you're a pretty fair reporter. You got any questions on that one? Um, actually, yeah. I mean, I, I love paying attention to global affairs and stuff, and the Middle East has always been really interesting to me. Um, I'm not necess- I don't think I'm nearly as um, <laughs> experienced or whatever as Brandon is, because he's written a ton on these issues, but I think some of the things that are interesting about what you said, um, especially with, like, the fact that the missiles probably wouldn't even reach the ship, that's pretty telling. Um, And, yeah, the the Gulf of Tonkin, (laughs) it is easy to compare it to that. Um, Although, I don't know, 
I don't know how eager the U.S. military would be to have any larger of an intervention in Yemen. Um, and it's, it's strange. Like, if there is a buildup and there's more pretext like this and um, we do kind of see that there is going to be some sort of intervention there, like, you know, boots on the ground or a bigger role in this the co uh, coalition, it'll be really important to find these events like you, you found and wrote about with this, the USS Mason. Um, but I think, honestly, in my opinion, I feel like there would need a lot more pretext than that to step it up, um, especially with how much controversy there is with the U.S. involvement in Syria um, and everywhere else, to be honest. Now we'll, we'll be covering Syria here shortly in the next segment. Uh, there will be a link that goes with this. I don't think I sent it to you guys yet. I just saw it today. Uh, I just pulled up uh, History of Yemen. And once again, kind of like going into Iraq uh, and, and taking civilization to Iraq, there's a contradiction in terms since Iraq was probably one of the very first world civilizations. Uh, right. Again, with Yemen, that's a, they've been a civilization for 3,000 years. They've been a trade civilization for 3,000 years. Um, <laughs> so it's not like we're messing around with backwards people here. This is a very advanced culture. Uh, and the, again, the tie-in back to Imperials is uh, they've been under, in 3,000 years, Lord knows how many different empires. <laughs> Uh, there was a north and south Yemen. Brandon, help me through here because this is not my area at all. But there was, prior to unification, there was a north and a south Yemen uh, just not too long ago. And I think you, you said something about somebody was deposed. Well, uh, Saleh was, was deposed um, earlier on, and, and this was during the uh, fake Arab Spring where the U.S. You know, engineered this, these alleged protests. It, it's, it's well known now that this was all instigated by the U.S. State Department and different NGOs that are connected to it. But Saleh was the, the president who was deposed, and uh, the, the new guy, uh, Abed Rabu Mansur Hadi. He was put into power not by democracy. There were no, there was no votes. Uh, this was he was put in place after a deal was brokered by the GCC, um, that which is the Gulf Cooperation Council, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, uh, United Arab Emirates, and they essentially imposed Hadi uh, on the Yemeni people, and that is why there's so much resentment, of course. Um, was that about uh, the same time that they found oil in North Yemen? Right, I, I, I apologize for catching you off guard on this, but when I was looking into Yemen's history, that pops up. It's amazing how many times oil finds show up with a regime <laughs> change. Well, Saleh was deposed in 2011. Okay. I think uh, the time period they were saying they first found the oil, and, or at least that they're fastened up to, was about the 90s, uh, 1990s. So, uh, it, it be, again, I apologize for catching you off guard and not having uh, the article to you. Uh, well, the, the North and South Yemen thing, back to empires, um, basically was uh, the, the Southern Empire was British Empire. Uh, there's one from the history books. And the northern uh, Yemen was basically the Ottoman Empire. Um, so we've got, just in that right right there, we've got two different clash of empires. Uh, any thoughts on any of this, guys? I'm, I, 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 <laughs> we're, we're really past my area of expertise. I've looked up well, one whole article here. <laughs> Now, now you've got the uh, <laughs> the paper tiger empire of the Saudis, right? Who who can't even, you know, they, they, you can't overthrow a ragtag group of people with uh, sandals and and some rifles bought on the black market. They're losing in uh, in Yemen, and I think this is why you're starting to see more and more American involvement because the Saudis just can't get it done. In fact, the Saudis aren't just losing in Yemen, they're losing in Saudi Arabia because the, the, the Houthis have penetrated into Saudi Arabia and have actually overtaken a few military bases and some other territory 
I believe at one report it was 10 kilometers into Saudi Arabia. I believe that may be more now. Um, so there, there, that's not really being talked about in the media that much. Uh, but, you know, I, again, I think this is why you're seeing American involvement because the Saudis are, are being defeated and they're being humiliated and they're showing themselves to be a paper tiger. I, um, you know, Sam, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you didn't think that the U.S. really wants to go in full force into Yemen and, and that's, I, I largely agree. I think they prefer to lead from behind and let the Saudis do it or let the right. United Arab Emirates do it. But I, I think now when we're seeing the, the signs that they can't, that's when I think there is the danger for greater American involvement, whether it's missiles, airstrikes, troops, whatever. I think once you see that the the people who you know we're, the U.S. is trying to lead from behind are losing, then the U.S. has to step up to the plate. That's where I think it becomes very dangerous. And then they would need pretext, so that does make a lot of sense. Um, actually, I, you're right, too, that the whole issue of Saudi Arabia kind of slowly failing is totally underreported. Um, I think that's dangerous, too, because they're obviously a pretty strategic partner militarily and everything else for the West. But um, have, this is, might be a little bit off subject now, but uh, where Yemen's position is near the Strait of Hormuz, right? Am I pronouncing yes. that right? Yes. And we just... On the other side of the strait, there is a – it used to be an old U.S. drone base, um, and I believe it's being taken over by, like, a Chinese logistical facility. So whenever weird events and things happen around the world, it's easy just to look at, like, the local reasons and history and everything else. But I honestly feel like, especially in the Middle East, given the history of, like, the grand chessboard and the great game and all that, there's always bigger powers doing things and competing there for other geopolitical reasons. Um, and I think that it might tie in that way, too, with what's going on in Yemen, uh, why the U.S. wants to find a pretext, because, you know, if the Chinese are trying to build some kind of presence there, whether it's military or logistic or whatever, that's a huge threat. Um, and, it, I mean, you could easily see things spiraling out of control in Africa, too, but... Uh, <laughs> kind of all over the place, but there is, I think there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on, and I'd love to research more of this with you um, and maybe, you know, inform some people about what's really happening before something spins out of control. You know, you bought, brought up a great point about the, uh, the the Chinese involvement, because notice when there was this big uh, ordeal about uh, ISIS fighters, uh, I think it's Boko Haram in Nigeria, uh, these these fighters were all centered around an area on the borders of Chad, Niger, and Nigeria, where there's this big giant lake there. And the Chinese have development interests in this area, and mm -hmm. notably these forces that are basically part of the Western-backed terrorist coalition, ISIS. You know, it's all the same stuff, and and these are controlled by Western countries. This is where they were destabilizing uh, the, the, in, in Africa, right? Right in the area where the Chinese had uh, business interests. So um, that, that's something. Yeah, that's. that's I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, and Middle East and North Africa, or I guess Africa in general, it's hard to separate sometimes. But um, right in that region too, it's the. I think it's the largest, or the plan to be the largest military base um, run by the U.S. is in Niger that they're working on now. Um, I think it's mostly for surveillance aircraft and drones, but you can see these little drone bases popping up all over Africa now, and it always is in strategic places or places where they know that the Chinese are going to be interested. Uh, the the Tonkin Gulf and, and the Empire tie in again. Uh, let's keep in mind that the, that the, the Vietnam original Tonkin Gulf, uh, we were coming in after the French imperialism uh, had fallen apart and we propped up the French effort that was the American Empire um, but once again we've got this empires playing chess that's an excellent way of looking at this uh, especially if you could give us a little background on on the, the grand chess board here Brandon uh, Mr. Brzezinski yeah this isn't was quite as random as it looks 
It's not random at all. I mean, he he put out a book called The Grand Chessboard, and it's readily available. People can go on Amazon, pick it up, and it's not that expensive. It's you know, it's really dense, but he he covers a lot of a um, lot of information in there. He actually break things down on you know main players, middle of the road players, and then the people who just get played on. You know, there's uh, the United States and Russia, and then there's uh, France is sort of middle of the road now, um, and then you get countries like what we've been discussing, Yemen, Niger, Chad. These are the people who get taken advantage of. And he talks about in this book, it's basically what he refers to as U.S. strategic primacy, but I think you can reasonably – when he says U.S., I think you can reasonably suggest that this means Anglo-American, uh, you know, sort of Western NATO – type of uh, power because those are all mixed up together when you whenever you're talking about the US uh, the the UK France and so forth it's it, it, even countries like uh, Norway and uh, Germany less so but definitely part of it uh, you you're really talking about a unified force uh, under these NATO umbrellas and so he talks about this strategic primacy and how to turn this strategic primacy into world hegemony, which is basically an intellectual way of saying world domination, right? To control mm-hmm. the world under one power and have a hegemonic system where everything's the same, uh, everything is going under the same rules. And of course, you know, this, this isn't world peace he's talking about here. This is literally domination. And in that book, he talks about breaking up national governments into microstates and mini-states. We, we see that with the talk about federalism in Syria, uh, what was done in Sudan. Uh, we see that in a number of different countries where the idea is to break national governments up into these squabbling, petty, impotent states that are based on religion, uh, ethnicity, some type of tribal identity. Uh, really breaking things back back down to very basic uh, exclusive types of uh, you know ideologies, and what happens is once these areas are are so small and so impotent, they cannot resist a world power like the United States, like NATO. They can't resist a major corporation. They can't resist a major bank. And they're squabbling amongst each other because your neighbor is not of the same religion, and and this and this is a cause for uh, for conflict because your little impotent state is based on religion. And one of the other things that is interesting, he mentions Russia. He wants to break up Russia into three different uh, segments. There's the uh, European, Western European Russia the Far East Russia and sort of – I forgot what he, he calls the – I think it's Eurasian Russia. So three federalized uh, parts of Russia. And I, I would ask people, do you really think that Russia is just going to allow that to happen? Um, you know, <laughs> I was they're just not, thinking the same thing. They're not going to see Brzezinski's logic and break up their own country and, and many other – you know forces have tried to do something similar, have tried to break up Russia, and it didn't work. Um, they're talking about doing something similar with China, but Russia's the the big uh, the big prize. And, and this is in his book, and people can read it, and it's extremely dangerous because if Russia doesn't agree to do it on their own, then you're going to have to force them to do it. And how do you do it other than provoking destabilizations or outright war and that's incredibly dangerous and an early uh, Brzezinski was an early advisor to the Obama campaign as I recall mm-hmm. we'll try and get a link to it well I'll yes get a link to, uh, oh, go ahead and never forget that he was the architect of al-qaeda this was the guy who created al-qaeda under the under Jimmy Carter when he was the national security advisor and if anybody doubts that, they can just go to YouTube yet again and watch him. And there's a number of interviews that he's done, one especially where you know he even says that he's unrepentant about creating al-Qaeda. So what was the, what was the big deal? Uh, would you rather have Russia and Afghanistan or some stirred-up Muslims out in the middle of the desert? And, and in fact, uh, he even admitted in this interview that the Mujahideen – uh, aka al-Qaeda, was not funded as a response to the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. It was created to draw the Russians in. So this was before 
the uh, the Russians even went into Afghanistan. So people can look up well, that that stuff online. It's really available. I, I had no idea that they were talking about creating it to draw the Russians in. I always kind of just took the the service level like they needed a force that they weren't directly involved with, and it looked like it was just local fighters. But that's that's really interesting and pretty telling too. Yeah, we'll yeah he he actually. I'm, I'm sorry, Terry. He actually says we 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 armed them and funded them and created them to draw the Russians in. And that's not a direct quote, but "draw the Russians in" is a direct quote. And you know, they they were definitely on the ground, inspiring the uh, the cause of jihad. And uh, you know, this was on mainstream reports. You can find the clips on YouTube if they don't take them down. Yeah, I think wasn't didn't they say the officially that they liked the extremists because they thought they were better fighters? Yeah, I think so. And in fact, if you look at the, uh, there's an early report about this. There's a glowing report on Osama bin Laden and uh, his uh, Mujahideen fighters, right? The Mujahideen are great fighters for freedom and all this stuff, right? And only a few years, a few decades later, they're uh, you know allegedly responsible for terrorist attacks and and all of this great evil. Mm-hmm. Chickens so coming home to roost. Divide and Conquer. Uh, that we'll have a link to it, and we'll have also a link to Balkanization, some of the toolbox that imperialists or uh, have been using for pretty much uh, as long as there's been history. Uh, divide and Conquer at least goes back to Julius Caesar, I believe, was talking about it. So we're back 2,000 years. Uh, we're we're yeah. 21 minutes, 22 minutes. Go ahead, Sam. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, that's, I mean, every time I think about, like, why the world is the way it is, you can kind of almost directly trace it back to how empires behave in places where there are people and resources that they want to exploit. I mean, Northern Ireland, Africa, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, it was all, like, their playgrounds for a long, long time. And I think they did finally realize that if they divide up the countries, sometimes arbitrarily, and you shove one type of people in this spot and another people in the other spot, then they're pretty much going to control themselves and not look at you, the actual oppressor. And it, it, it really is an effective way to kind of get a feel for why things are the way they are in the world, I think. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> <laughs> 22 minutes and 38 seconds into the show, and we need to get into our next segment. A pretty good segue. Uh, we'll have a link showing uh, the the place that's now the number one refugee hotspot is Yemen. Uh, has taken over from the former number one, Syria. <laughs> uh, and uh, there was a reporter just almost exactly two years ago, Serena Shim, who is no longer with us. Um, can can somebody? Oh, that was two years that? already. Can we go ahead and uh, somebody help me out on the Serena Shim story? We'll have several links on it. Probably one of the least covered reporters uh, who really did her job. Um, WikiLeaks is now showing that a lot of what she was reporting at the time uh, sounded uh, less than plausible at the time, was the official line. Uh, now it's showing pretty much, uh, pretty much on the money. Um, Serena Shim, uh, get, can you can you, somebody give me a hand on uh, her story in a nutshell here? Well, I can I can try. Um, it's I, I know that she was a, a broadcaster for for press TV and that she'd worked at a, as a foreign correspondent for for quite a while. I think she'd been in a number of different uh, war zones and and certainly all over the Middle East. She was a well respected reporter. Although toward the the end of her life, she was being smeared as a conspiracy theorist because she was suggesting that Turkey was harboring terrorists and that they were uh, helping send those terrorists into Syria and that the um, possibly even the U.S. was was involved. And of course, conspiracy theorist and, until uh, except the fact that she wasn't. All of that came out very shortly after. Even after her death, I think there was a report shortly after she died where there were actual uh, terrorists and uh, MIT, Turkish MIT intelligence agents, 
talking with one another and uh, quite casually about how they were going to organize the shipments into Syria and how they were going to uh, engage in, in, in military actions inside Syria. So she was vindicated very shortly after her death. But the the official cause of her death was a car accident that she hit a cement truck. I, I believe it was a cement truck. And uh, before her death, she had said on TV, on press TV, that she believed that Turkish intelligence was about to arrest her uh, on charges of being a spy. And she seemed to be quite concerned about that. And then, again, it was only a matter of days before uh, – after that report that she was she was killed in this incident. And then there's different – questions about her about the timeline between when she was allegedly killed in the accident when she got to the hospital when her body was returned to the parents when they actually received her body there's all these questions that make some of us not believe the official story and i don't i personally believe she was killed by uh turkish intelligence for exposing what uh what turkey was going to do what Turkey was doing. Sorry, we'll have links. We'll have links that are are showing uh, the few questions that have been asked, uh, and the extremely small amount of information has basically been, in, at least in America, a, a pretty much solid media blackout uh, on this story. She is an American. Was an American. Uh, this is an American citizen. Uh, when the State Department was asked about an investigation. Uh, you'll have to look at the link. It, it speaks for itself. Yeah, and I can only imagine if if she had been reporting inside Syria and and a, a Syrian military jet had had dropped a bomb nearby, if they would have ignored it then. Um, yeah, as you said, I I don't think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I've heard any reports in the mainstream media there certainly not after she right after she died there may be some now uh but i don't very little next to nothing Uh, there was an article and we'll link to it that uh from was it mint mintstream uh an indie oh mint press news yeah if somebody yeah I, i figured they would cover it i think i actually read about Serena for the first time on Mint Press News, um, which is actually based here in Minneapolis and run by a uh, Palestinian-American woman, so it kind of makes sense why they would cover uh, Serena, but I'm actually on Google News right now. I'm going to type in her name and see what pops up, because I'm very curious to see what man should cover, just even, let's see here. Yeah, Mint Press News, uh, there's a report on Fox News, Um, RT but yeah, no, nothing like no CBS, no ABC, nothing really Again, big besides that Fox ago. one. Right. How current was that one, by the way? Uh, 2014. And I'm trying yeah, to pull it up here. It looks like it was just one of those like the mother of a victim is calling for this and this type of story. Oh, actually, it's kind of an extensive report. But that's the only one that I would call a mainstream report. Yeah, that's. A- Almost a textbook definition of a media blackout. Yeah. The, the amount of information we know two years after this American reporter was killed, doing her job and doing it effectively is next to nothing. Uh, Anonymous has helped. They've been trying to keep the issue front and center. The world is watching. Um, any other thoughts before we're, we're at 28 minutes and we're going to have to move into the second section? Uh well, I would just say, yeah, two years on, and we don't know anything about her death any more than we did before, except that she was right. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, uh, that's, again, self-evident, kind of speaks for itself, that this is something that needs to be looked into. And hopefully this is the beginning of uh, reporters taking a look at, uh, it's been open season on reporters for a while. If we don't start making that prohibitively expensive, um, none of us is going to make it, guys. Uh, 29 minutes, 38 seconds. She was killed outside Cobain. Um, Brandon, can you kind of, this will tie us back into empires and imperialism. Uh, (laughs) Cobain goes back. (laughs) 
<laughs> Way. Yeah. Well, it, you know, interestingly enough, uh, well, we we need to mention because it ties into the media too. But uh, it's it's pronounced Kobane. Uh, th- this is a Turkish word, and it means company, um, <laughs> like business company. And the, the 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 real name of this place, by the way, is Ain al Arab, which means Arab Spring, and not not the phony one, but an actual creek that used to <laughs> used to go through the area. And it's you know that's what Ain al Arab, but uh, it was renamed Kobani, and again, that's actually, I'm sorry, not a Turkish word, it's a Kurdish word. So the media is intentionally using the Kurdish name of this town as opposed to the Syrian Arabic name because there's a reason for that, and that is to promote the creation of a Kurdistan and legitimize the Kurdistan, and that goes right back into microstates and many states. But this uh, Kobani town was, was really... It, it, it took off and got this name because of a railroad project that was coming from uh, you know out of Turkey, and it was a, a German-based railroad uh, that was supposed to connect the, the the Middle East, basically Mesopotamia, with Germany. This was prior to World War One, shortly before World War One. That would have allowed Germany basically its own oil supply. It would have allowed it a pipe, not not a pipeline, but it would have allowed it an energy supply coming from the Middle East, and uh, that would have competed with the French, and that would have competed with the Russians and with the British, and uh, you know, it never materialized fully. This parts of the railroad were built, but it never materialized fully because we had World War One, and that stopped it all. Uh, that railroad has since been built for other reasons but it's not you know it's it's very old now it i think the original idea went back to the late 1800s and uh it 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 sort of had a major hiccup with the first world war but that's how the town got its name and it means company railroad company in in kurdish and that's uh again as you mentioned terry that that definitely ties back to empire because this was the glory days of of European empire. Uh, this is back when all of it was guys in suits and, and top hats and monocles and uh, you know uh, when all this stuff was was glorified. Now we we have a different cover. We bring freedom and democracy to people now. Yeah. We've, uh, we've got about eight minutes left in this section. We want to kind of bring it back to empire, uh, the British Empire, uh, when you pull up the word imperialism, and we'll have a link to that, you're going to see the picture of Cecil Rhodes striding across the world. Uh, Cecil Rhodes is identified in uh, Anthony Sutton's history, which we've talked about a lot on this show, maybe new to some of the listeners. Um, when, when you see Cecil Rhodes show up, you're basically looking at uh, someone who's working as a right-hand man to what's called the money power, uh, the Rothschild banks. And again, there's uh, also Rothschild banks that would have been financing the competing, and I put that in quotes, the competing program from the Berlin-Baghdad-German uh, versus the Rothschilds in England, um, the four families. Uh so a little friendly competition, which is also being listed as uh, one of the possible causes of World War One, I, I, uh, kind of bring us back to this chessboard can have a lot of casualties pile up. Any thoughts, guys? Well, oh, I, uh, I, I, oh, go ahead, Sam. No, you go first. <laughs> okay, I was just going to add about uh, Cecil Rhodes, uh, just a little-known factoid about Cecil Rhodes. This, he, we had the Rhodes Foundation, which was essentially um, – it was imperialism privatized in a foundation, but it was also uh, intelligence. Uh, the Rhodes Foundation met with the um, Alfred P. Milner group at one point, and they kind of merged with these roundtable groups that became the Royal Institute of International Affairs uh, in, in England – and in the United States, its version was called the Council on Foreign Relations, and and this has only changed the names, but the uh, the ideas and the intentions are and the methodologies largely are still the same. And the families. 
Don't forget the families. Yeah, the families too. That the whole intelligence um, and Wall Street, or I guess whatever you know, central bank or you know, just big money interests in the country that it's in. That's another thing too that I try to emphasize when people are talking about these issues is because we know about like the revolving door between Wall Street and the White House or like the Pentagon and contractors, but there's extremely close ties between all these things and finance um, with intelligence. I think the OSS, um, the predecessor to the CIA, was like mostly composed of people, uh, or at least originally brainstormed by Wall Street bankers. Um, and it, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because if you're trying to create as much money as you can and hoard all the wealth or whatever it is that their goal actually is, you would need an intelligence system that can have eyes and ears and operations all across the world. Uh, and it kind of bums me out when people don't always associate those things, but I'm glad you guys brought it up here. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I think... Uh, links to this history, too. Again, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is the work of uh, very well-respected. Uh, nobody's ever really disproved what Anthony Sutton. There's been a lot of non-denial denials, but nobody's laid a glove on what he was actually saying as far as the truthfulness. Uh, and, and Quigley, Carol Quigley, is also, uh, I believe there's connections in his work, uh, which takes us back to the Amer Anglo-American special relationship between the United States and Great Britain. Uh, go ahead, Brandon. <laughs> That's one of your books, too. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, uh, when, you, when you mentioned the OSS, I do believe that the original address for the headquarters of the OSS was in England uh, for quite a number of years, and it was, I believe, at the same address as the Royal Institute of International Affairs. But... <laughs> Um, See, that, that's great. I, I love those address correlations because when I'm doing, like, investigating spy planes or I think I've found something, usually you'll find, like, a cheesy front company name or just something not really telling, but there's always an address. And when you find the address, that's, that, it's pretty much spot on. <laughs> so that's, that's a great correlation right there. I actually didn't know that either, but makes sense. Uh, we'll, we'll try and get the links to all this. This is going to be a lot of links in this show, and I'm going to need you guys to help me try to remember all the different things I said we want to link to. Uh, we just had some a partial list, and obviously we're finding more of them we need to link to as we go through here. Got about two minutes left in this section. Any uh, any last thoughts about uh, company? <laughs> the town is company. Yeah, I, I would just say that uh, Kobani is is really, or Ayn al Arab is uh, really significant because, as I said earlier, this is an attempt to legitimize the creation of a Kurdistan, which is not a legitimate uh, idea, uh, despite a lot of the uh, information that's being put out there by by Western media, especially. Um, this is something that has a lot of negative connotations remember the Kurds are working with the and, and I mean YPG not all the Kurdish people but the YPG are working with the Free Syrian Army which is essentially Al-Qaeda you know these are uh, fanatics and the Kurds the YPG the uh, the other uh, militias have gone out and they've actually engaged in ethnic cleansing against a number of different people uh, Christians Assyrians and others have been slaughtered by the YPG fighters. So if, if anybody wants to you know, uh, glor uh, glorify the uh, Kurdish fighters, they can go take a look at the instances of, of genocide that they've committed against these small villages. And we want to make a differentiation at this point between the Kurdish people and the Kurdish balkanized governments. Uh, right, for, absolutely. Anything, uh, any last thoughts there, Sam? Got about uh, 45 um, seconds. Well, <laughs> I, I, don't, I mean, I don't have too much of substance to add other than the fact that um, we did some reporting on Turkey and the Kurds and the relationship there. Um, in part of that reporting, we tried to create an infographic that would kind of visually explain all the players involved in the Syrian and Iraqi conflicts going on right now, and it was incoherently difficult. Like, it's amazing that uh, 
<laughs> it's just amazing to me that we can have an active ally on the ground that we also designate as a terrorist group, and then someone that we're closely working with is bombing them. And it's just it's so strange and complex, and I'm kind of shocked that it hasn't spiraled out any more of control than it has. Um, but no, I mean, I, I'm, I think I'd be comfortable talking <laughs> about Syria with Brandon. I actually have a good number of questions um, I wrote down about when he was talking about uh, his encounters with Syrian refugees in uh, Lebanon, right? Yeah, in, in Lebanon. They're, they're all over in Lebanon, obviously. You're just back from the Middle East right now. You just got back in the last week or two, didn't you? Yeah, last couple of weeks. I was over there for about two weeks. Um, it was our intention to go to Syria to to do a couple of things. One would be to express opposition to U.S. involvement in Syria, but the other was to get an idea for what was going on on the ground and, and talk to people in Syria, Syrians in Syria. Um, I've I've done that. I have you know sources and and so forth. But I you know it's it's also good to be on the ground in the country too. And just where you can meander and 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 take a look at what's what's going on for yourself. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to get into Syria. We didn't get the uh, the the vouchers. Uh, I'm sorry, the visas to uh, to go in. But I was in Lebanon for about two weeks, and I managed to travel all over the country and meet a lot of Lebanese people and Syrian uh, refugees and Syrians visiting uh, from from Syria. Did you, um, do you have like a tally of how many Syrians you spoke with, just to kind of give people a general idea? Uh, do, you know, dozens. Um, especially if you're in Beirut, it's it's easier to um, to meet them in Beirut because it's a larger city. Uh, you know, we spoke to dozens of people there. Um, out once you get out in the country areas, obviously it's 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 harder. They're there as well, but it's harder to uh, to meet individuals there. Um, in the city, when you, you you can go up to people if you you know if you if you have an idea that they might be Syrian, but if you if you happen to have something, one of one member of our group had um, a wristband with a Syrian flag on it, and a guy who was a refugee who was cooking saw that that flag and stopped what he was doing and, and ran over to us and thanked us for what we were doing for his country. And it, you know, it was amazing. These are some of the most uh, kind and friendly and forgiving people that I have ever met because if you, they, they know well what the United States is doing as ignorant as the American public can be about what's happening in Syria. Syrians know full well that the United States is behind all of this stuff and yet an American that comes over to, to Syria or to the Middle East is not treated with disgust or hatred or anger. They're treated so kindly, and, and the people are so friendly and will spend as much time as they can talking to you. Or if you don't have an interpreter, they'll try it. You know, you, the Google Translate, you'll hand your phone back and forth or the you know, body language and so forth. Um, not, not one of them that I talked to supported this so-called rebellion or any of the rebels or anything like it. All of them supported the Syrian government and all of them supported Bashar al-Assad. And I think it's important because in Lebanon, they have you know nothing to fear. The media will say, well, if you talk to Syrians in Syria, of course they'll say they like Assad because they're scared he's going to barrel bomb them or, or, or torture them. Well, that's not the case in Lebanon because Assad can't get over there, and uh, Syria, the Syrian military uh, can't uh, track you down and and uh, follow you around and listen to everything you're saying. And, and obviously, and they they many of them volunteered it to us in terms of that information. Some of them you'd have to ask, and they'd give their their opinion. But um, you know, they're they're what else can I say? They're free from any fear that they would have of the Syrian government if they're in Lebanon, and they still had this opinion. 100% of them supported the Syrian government, and 100% uh, supported Assad. That is not uh, the perception that we're getting back here in the States by any stretch of the imagination. They've, yeah, Assad not at all. I mean, if I can... Uh, go, go ahead, please. Oh, sorry, Terry. No, sorry, Terry. No, you, you finish your yeah. thought. 
Yes, uh, that 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 was what I was hoping I could get a reaction from you out of uh, the the domestic. Uh, we've been led to believe he's some kind of a monster. He's won election twice, hasn't he? He is the elected leader of a country, whether we well, like him I or not. I think he won by like 97 percent, didn't he? <laughs> it was 93 percent, um, and <laughs> and I I believe it. And this is one I have to say I believe there was no indication that there were these elections were not fair and. If you had had that election in 2009, 2010, and he won by 93%, I wouldn't have, have believed that necessarily. It would have been questionable. But today, I, I believe 100% that he won by that much. I mean, also look at the opposition that, that was running. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, these guys were, were weak. Uh, they, they, were, they were talking about things like uh, – Corruption. This was their big platform. I think one of them may have had something to do with the environment or something like that. I mean, this is this is not what what Syrians are interested in. Obviously, they they want corruption to go away and they care about the environment, but uh, they care a little more about ISIS and Al Qaeda at this point. And in the Middle East too, you you tend to have this uh, rallying around. A personality too. Uh, there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So for him, he's a symbol of the real resistance, right? He has even people who may not have liked him to begin with because they thought maybe you know uh, the you know things were moving too slowly in terms of reforms. Uh, they're huge fans of Assad now, and. Uh, if the United States wanted to, to to engender hatred for the Syrian president, this has been a major blow to that plan because he is extremely popular. Uh, there are some some people will tell you that uh, the problem they have with him is that he's too soft. <laughs> and they, in fact, one of his nicknames was Assad the uh, the soft-hearted because they saw him as too soft on these religious extremists. And uh, we get in the American media. Uh, no, it's not. And and again, I would say there's never been any evidence ever that the Syrian military or the Syrian government has targeted intentionally targeted civilians. Obviously, civilians do get caught in the crossfire, um, you know. But there's never been any evidence that they've intentionally targeted civilians. O- on the other hand. We could stay here for the rest of the week talking about evidence that America's rebels have intentionally attacked civilians. But um, if you want to get a reaction out of people, ask them what they think of of the of, of the rebels in Syria. If you want to get a reaction out of the Syrian people, and you'll you'll get a reaction. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't like this uh, rebellion at all. And a lot of are you also picking up that a lot of the uh, the rebels are not. Syrians that they're coming in from other countries. Yeah, absolutely. Now there were some Syrians uh, involved in this, but so many of them are coming from Saudi Arabia. They're coming from Libya. In fact, there, there's a number of articles, even mainstream articles, that are are showing the ethnicity and the uh, nationality of the people coming. They're coming from all over the world. They're, in fact, now they're coming from Europe. They're coming from France and Germany and, and England too. And coming back, of course, but they are um, – Saudi Arabia and Libya, I believe, might be the biggest number uh, – might hold the biggest number of terrorists. I'd have to look – that have come into Syria. I'll have to look, but at one point it was Libya, one point it was Saudi, and then I, it may have been somewhere else. I'll have to look at the statistics today, but the majority of these guys are foreign. Um, if you look at the – the body count sometimes you'll see that out of the guys who were killed only you know there might be 15 killed and there might be three who are syrian uh, maybe even less sometimes so it's an overwhelmingly foreign invasion uh, there's the this is the thing that's kind of frustrating when you hear people say things like well you know both parties need to lay down arms and negotiate and say, well th- this is not a really a two party this is not a civil war for one thing, people call this the Syrian civil war. It's not a Syrian civil war. It's an invasion of Syria, uh, and and that's plain and simple what it is. Uh, what else would you call, call a foreign power using mercenaries to come in and overthrow a government? You know. 
the American Revolution. Uh, we could we could add in Hessians that were brought in, uh, which is supposed to be part of the beginnings of the Rothschild fortune. Uh, that he was making money off of bringing the Hessians into the American Revolution, the mercenaries. Uh, so again, this empire pattern repeats over and over and over. Bring in the mercenaries. Uh, yeah, but the big difference left. too is that the uh, Hessians didn't make up ninety-six percent of the re rebellion either. So it's, it, you know, this in Syria they make up the overwhelming majority. Uh, I think too, when you're talking about foreign fighters coming in, it's important to uh, keep in context the fact that a lot of them came from Libya and they have a lot of weapons that <laughs> they acquired in that conflict. Um, which goes back to us creating our own enemies and everything else too, which is sad trope that keeps coming up in our history. Um, but I, I was really curious. I actually wrote down a couple of questions after I read your article, if I could ask some of them. Um, sure, please. Do you, do you think that, um, I guess I'm trying to struggle to put it, do you think that a lot of the people that are saying they support Assad and the Syrian government that you spoke with, they might just be looking at that as a better option than what exists now. And maybe before the conflict started, they wouldn't be so kind uh, speaking about Assad. Because, I mean, I, I get what you're saying with, um, like, how Middle East, they sometimes like strongmen, um, and we don't have a good view. But uh, I could also see how there would be a lot of people opposed to him because his family's been in power for so long, and I don't think they're the most politically free country, or they weren't. Yeah, I, uh, if you had asked, again, in, in 2009 or 2010, and you would ask Syrians, I think what you would get would be, um, you know, the, the reforms are coming too slow, you know, he's, he's allowing, you know, this to happen versus this, you know, you would get a lot of criticism of, of Assad. And, I, and when I say a lot of criticism, I don't mean, you know, terrorist-based criticism, this fanaticism and the desire to have a revolt, I mean basic complaint that you would get anywhere, that they don't like that the reforms are coming too slow or they don't like that there's uh, corruption in the government or something like that. I think if the war ended today, you you might see um, – well, actually, I think if the war ended today, you would have a, a lasting legacy you know that would that would follow Assad around, and you know if he if he screwed a bunch of things up, at least he's the guy that you know that that saw us through this war, kind of the George Washington uh, motif. Abraham but, Lincoln would be a better. Uh, Abraham <laughs> Lincoln did come up for election during the American Civil War and was reelected overwhelmingly. Well, I'm, I'm saying after the war, after all of this is over, if and things get back to normal, I, you know, I think you would still see this sort of George Washington idea of follow him around that he he got us through the worst part, you know, that uh, of our history. But um, had the war never taken place, yeah, I don't, I, you know, you would you would hear criticism of Assad. I, I don't think that Syrians are without criticism. Of him, uh, they love him, but they're not without criticism either. And, and and again, this is coming from the people you are talking to, just the people that are Syrian mm -hmm. people that are refugees from this war, right? Right. And the criticism, by the way, is not that he's barrel bombing hospitals or barrel bombing, uh, you know, uh, civilians. That's none of that. That's because it's not happening for one thing. And then it, it's not that he's cracking down on on uh these 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 fighters it's basic basic uh, ideas you know like maybe there's corruption in this office and or or this guy got an unfair bonus which is something that Assad was you know cracking down on and i think that would have been the major complaint before this so-called um civil war this before this destabilization was that the reforms were coming too slow and and they wanted to see it come come faster. And I think a lot of people would actually compare him to his father and say, you know, at the time that if Hafez was here, this would have been done by now. You know, <laughs> and uh, uh, Hafez is not hated in in Syria. The U.S. may hate him for a number of different reasons because he refused to go along with some things, but he's not hated there. And uh, Bashar certainly isn't hated today. And he's loved today. I, 
if you you know if you had elections again today, he'd win a ninety three percent again. Got about five minutes left, guys. I'd, I'd like to bring up uh, the First World War was mentioned because of the empires, uh, the clash of empires, and I uh, about ten years ago today, I was uh, I wrote a blog article, and I think you guys have seen this one, where I was talking about the end of World War One. Uh, we tried to assign guilt for World War One to the German people. Um, the Versailles Treaty, uh, the reparations, which were just finished, I think the last of the of the World War One payments, just happened a couple of months ago, uh, <laughs> about 70 years after the end of the war. Um, so that was one approach, which led right straight to World War Two. Uh, at the end of World War Two, we again were trying to assign guilt for the war and instead of assigning it to the entire German people it was assigned to just the leadership the war crimes trials and the reasons for having international law and war crimes we hung people for war crimes mm -hmm. at the end of World War II uh, we hung people for war crimes that are being committed by Americans and at some point somehow some way justice is going to be served any thoughts, guys? Uh, four minutes left. Yeah, I mean, uh, the chickens always come home to roost. And even if it's not some vengeful foreign actor that's going to try and get some kind of weird justice on us, it'll come back in the form of military technology or that we're not funding our infrastructure or schools, um, re regardless of, you know, if somebody's going to come by and be some kind of vengeful actor. I mean, which has already happened here because of our foreign policy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the chickens always come home to roost. And I wish we had a political option in this country for a drastic drawdown of our foreign involvement militarily, but we don't. Um, and that's there unfortunate. No there was no peace candidate. Uh, no, there hardly ever is that, has, <laughs> that is viable. <laughs> but I actually I was really curious to get Brandon's take on one thing quickly, if I could. Um, in, in your talking with the Syrian people, what did they think that the U.S. should do? Mm, excellent. Leave and, and stop funding terrorists. That, that is, is very simple. They, they want the United States and Western powers. They want the troops out. They want the airstrikes to stop. They want the, the terrorists to stop being funded and facilitated. They want the United States to just go home and worry about the United States and let Syria worry about Syria. Uh, they don't want them to come in and bomb terrorists. They would let the Syrian military do it. And in fact, if if the U.S. would butt out, it wouldn't be very long before the Syrian military wiped them wiped them out. So that's they want the United States to just go home uh, and and leave them alone and to stop funding terrorism. Stop supporting terrorists is is the most common phrase that I heard from uh, from Syrian people. They're also perplexed as to why the American people aren't out in the streets. That's the other thing that was hard to, to try to explain and to answer when someone would say, why aren't you people upset? You know, you know, we, we know what's going on. Why aren't you in the streets? Why aren't you demanding that your government stop this? They, they don't seem to comprehend why Americans aren't angry and upset. Um, and it's, you know, honestly, it's hard to explain to them why not. And it's certainly not easy to justify. Uh, that's that we, it's it's unjustifiable to, to tell them why Americans don't care. But that's something that um, they they are still confused about. Why Americans aren't upset and out in the street? And nobody that you talk to, um, out of all the people that you talk to, every single one of them has lost somebody close to them as a result of this war. And I, I have been told this, and I haven't had a chance to really go into the demographics, but out of these countries in the Middle East that we are bombing and destroying, the uh, the average age of the people there is quite young. And what an incredibly horrible type of karma have we sown that we are destroying countries of, of, of young people that will know nothing but our bombs and beheadings and torture and terror. 
And then as our empire collapses, they're going to be looking at us, and we've sown some really bad karma. Uh, so uh, that the chickens will come home to roost, and they always do. And uh, you know what? What can you say? What can you say about that? Uh, do we deserve it? Uh, you know, uh, can't argue with that. Well, well, history will tell. Uh, we are out of time, guys. I want to thank you for a superb show.